If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 1028. 1028. We are taking a summer break from our study in the book of Genesis. We intend to pick it back up in the middle or the second week of August. But over the next seven weeks, until that time, we will be looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These are letters uh, written to seven historical churches in a region called Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. They were in and around the city of Ephesus, as we will see. These churches were located along a major uh, travel route, and Paul, excuse me, John addresses them in a, in a clockwise fashion. You can see Ephesus to your bottom left, and then around the, around the circle we go, and that's how Paul addresses them in the book, in terms of their geographical locations. The letters were recorded by John, as we just said, that's the Apostle John, but as we will find out, they were dictated to him by Jesus. And not just Jesus, as we'll see in verse 7, also the Spirit. This book is called Revelation. Or sometimes you may hear it misspoken as revelations. It is a misspoken word and it might seem like an unimportant distinction. uh, But the name of the book is actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelations of Jesus Christ. The revelation. It's, It's one revelation. It's one revelation by God to the apostle John. And though the content of the book has drawn much interest, because much of what we think about the book of Revelation has to do with the end times, this book actually is about Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. That's what the book is about. That's what the emphasis is. Even in our study of the end times, or what is called eschatology, Even that, it is about Jesus. We ought not to miss Jesus in our study of any doctrine, especially the doctrine of the end times. Revelation chapter 1 opens with a vision of Jesus given to John. Chapters 2 and 3 continue with Jesus' words uh, of seven letters to seven churches. Chapters 4 and 5, John then encounters a a vision of the throne room of God, where the lamb who was slain is worshipped. And who is that lamb but Jesus? From there, chapters 6 through 16 describe the coming judgment against those who reject Jesus in unbelief. And the book concludes with the fall of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18, the return of King Jesus in chapters 19 and 20, and finally, the new heaven and the new earth ushered in by Jesus in chapters 21 and 22. The book is about Jesus. 
The book actually ends with this promise, this great promise of Jesus' eminent return to which John says, even so, come Lord Jesus. The point is Jesus. And so as we read these letters, we understand that they address issues in the church today, which we will address as well. There is application for us today, but we ought not to miss what these verses say and tell us about Jesus, which should not be hard as chapter one, excuse me, verse one begins with a statement about Jesus. Look at it. Chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. First, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes. Uh, This is the first letter, and it was directed to the church in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was called the first city of Asia, the, the light of Asia. It was a significant city for several reasons. It was significant politically because it was the capital city. It was significant commercially because of the roadways and the seaports that brought people to it. And it was significant religiously because it was the center of worship to a fertility god named Artemis or Diana. We see more about that in Acts chapters 19 and 20. Specifically though, this letter is written, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. An angel, of course, as we understand it, is a heavenly being. However, this can be translated, and some of your footnotes in your Bible probably do reference this, as messenger, as John the Baptist is called a messenger in the Gospels. This also could be referring to an elder or a pastor. The point is, is that the letter is written to a leader or a representative of the church. And Ephesus had a notable history of of leaders, of pastors, beginning with Paul himself, and then Timothy, and then the apostle John. And yet, in the rest of verse 1, it tells us actually where the authority lies in the church. Not with John, not with Timothy, not with Paul. What does it say? Look at the rest of verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The words of him. Who? The words of Jesus. These are Jesus' words to the church. Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the golden lampstands. Now, this is a reference, as all of the seven letters have, at the the beginning of the letter, they refer back to chapter 1, to something in chapter 1. And here, it's referring back to these seven stars and these seven lampstands. And now, Much of Revelation has language and ideas and imagery that sometimes gets a little hard to understand, but these aren't that hard to understand because back in chapter one, Jesus actually tells us what the seven stars are and what the seven lampstands are. The stars in chapter one, verse 20, refer to the angels of the churches or the elders of the churches or the messengers of, of the churches. And the lampstand refers to the churches themselves. This idea of the plural, that these churches indicate the universal church, the, the, the called out ones. 
So what is this saying? It's saying that Jesus holds the stars. This speaks to his authority over all leaders in the church, over any messenger, every angel or pastor or elder or whatever you want to, to say. He holds the authority. His right hand speaks of power. That's a biblical um, Uh, something we see throughout the Bible. And he walks among the golden lampstands. That means he walks among the churches. So not only does it speak to to Jesus' power, but it speaks to his presence. Jesus is walking among these churches. He's walking among the church today as well. Jesus is present in his church, and not only in Ephesus, but in this church too. This is, of course, his church. It's not my church It's not even your church. It's Jesus' church. It's Jesus' church, and he is present there. And what is a church then? But it is the individuals that make up the community of faith, the the faith family. And that's why the gathering of, of God's people is so important. Because as we gather together as individuals of of members of this body, we make up the body. We make up the body of Christ. And Jesus' presence among us. So the letter begins with this introduction of telling us about Jesus, about his authority, about his presence. Verses 2 through 7 contain the letter itself, the address itself. And Jesus began the letter, verses 2 and 3, and also verse 6, we'll see, with commendations to the church. Let's read those verses. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And jump down to verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This phrase, I know, that we see in verse 2 and in verse 3, we will see in every letter in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus is telling the churches something about himself, that he is omniscient. He knows what's going on in the church. He knows about them. He knows the good things, and he knows the not-so-good things, which we will see in just a moment. From the outset, Jesus is making it abundantly clear to all the churches that he knows, that he is all-knowing, that he is, in fact, sovereign over all things. There is nothing, there is nothing that escapes him. Nothing. No, no, No good deed escapes him. No evil action escapes him. No impure thought or motive. No deviant belief. He knows it all. No one is getting away with anything. None of us. He knows it all. He wants to make sure that the church remembers. That tries we might. He knows. He begins though by expressing the good things that he knows about this church. He identifies several commendable things, good deeds and and good theology. And we could group this up with verses 2 and 
part of verse 2 and part of verse 3 as, as service and sacrifice. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now, Jesus was pleased with the busyness of the church in Ephesus of doing God, God's work. Right? They were toiling, they were laboring. Uh, this indicates to the point of exhaustion. They, they were busy about the things of God. And he says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And they were committed to, to holiness. In, a city, in the city of Ephesus, remember, the city of Ephesus was, was rank with idolatry, with idol worship, namely of, of Artemis or, or Diana, this, this enormous statue to this goddess. And yet here what we understand is they refused to worship idols. They were committed to not worshiping that. They, they could not bear with those who are evil. And their refusal to worship gained Christ's approval here. I know, I see it, he, Jesus says. Verse three goes on, I know you are, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. And the, these people were steadfast. They were enduring in the work of the Lord. Not growing weary, not giving up. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This, this kind of endurance, this kind of enduring patiently, this kind of, of labor was commendable. And Jesus is starting out by saying, I see it. I see what you're doing, and there, there's something to be commended there. But not only was it their works, but it was also their beliefs. They had sound doctrine. Look back at uh, the middle of verse 2, but have tested. So you cannot bear with what's evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. False teaching was a, was a major problem in the early church, and it continues to be a major problem in the church today, by the way. But here, what Jesus is saying about this church is that they were theologically orthodox, meaning they were doctrinally faithful, that they were believing the right things. They were believing the, the, the things that were true, right? They were um, testing the, the, these apostles. And by apostle, they don't mean apostle as in the apostles of Jesus. They mean apostle as in a teacher, a false teacher, and finding them to be false, that they were testing them. They were testing their teaching and they were finding out whether or not they were true. So we see service, we see sacrifice, we see sound doctrine. Verse 6 continues the same theme of, of the doctrine. That yet, you have, yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now this, this term Nicolaitans is, is kind of a, uh, an uncertain term of, of what is being actually suggested here. We'll see this uh, again in verse 15 of this same chapter. And in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, uh, right before it talks about the Nicolaitans, it talks about idolatry and immorality. And so there is some sense in which there may be a connection here between the Nicolaitans and idolatry and immorality. We'll talk more about that when we get to those verses. But what we do know for sure is that Jesus hated the works of the Nicolaitans as well. And so whatever the Nicolaitans believed, hating their works was in line with what Jesus believed. Right? 
Now, we want to make sure that we note something here. That Jesus says, you have hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He doesn't say hated the Nicolaitans. He says hating the works of the Nicolaitans, which is a necessary and important distinction. When we disagree with someone, when we disagree with a false teaching or a false theology or people who, who do, not see what, do not see what we see in the Bible, the, the invitation is, is not to, to hate them. We, we can hate their teaching without hating them. So Jesus makes these commendations of this church, of their sacrifice, of their service, of their sound doctrine. In the midst of a perverse society, what we find in the church of Ephesus is that they were standing against these false teachers, against these false doctrines. They were busy about the things of God. Jesus here identifies, we could, we could count out nine things in verses two and three. Nine things to, to, that are commendable. But then Jesus moves to a criticism in verse four. Read, read along with me. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. After all the positives, after all the, the commendation. Jesus then rebukes the church with this negative. They have abandoned their first love. They, they had lost their first love or they neglected or dismissed their first love. Now, as we're reading that, we might say, well, what is the love? What is the first love? What, what is he talking about when he says, you've abandoned the love you had at first? Some might want to say, well, that, that means the love of others, some would say, well, I think that means the love of God. We actually don't need to make that distinction. The answer is yes to both. Because our love for others is directly connected to our love for God. And in the great command, the way that we love God is by loving others. We demonstrate our love for God by loving others. Jesus was identifying here that at the beginning of their spiritual life, their spiritual journey, they had love. The abandon the love that you had at first, at the beginning. When you came to Christ, that love that you had, one writer says it this way, they had lost the first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life and had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. The church at Ephesus looked like a healthy church, a godly church on the outside. They were busy with good works. They had their doctrine in order, but they had lost the love. They had lost their first love, which put them into danger of what one writer calls a Pharisee church. And what's a Pharisee church? But, but doing the right things without the right motive. The problem here was not their actions. It wasn't their hands. It wasn't that they needed to do better. It actually wasn't even their, their mind. It wasn't that they needed better theology. The problem was their hearts. Their problem was their passion, their motivation, why they were doing what they were 
doing. They had, we could say, they had the what right. Serving, sacrificing, doctrine. Those are all, that's good. That's right. We should care about all of those things. But they didn't have the why. Warren Wearsby writes, it's only as we love Christ fervently that we can serve him faithfully. Our love for him must be pure. Brothers and sisters, churches like ours can be prone to this same criticism from Jesus. We can be all about the truth, the truth, the truth. And rightly so. We ought to be about the truth. But do we love? Do we love? In all our busyness, in all our good deeds, what is the compelling force behind any of it? Is it love? Well, this loss of love for the Ephesus church was no small matter. But hope was not lost. Jesus' Jesus's criticism here was not to say that the Ephesians were, were not Christians. After all, in order to lose something, you must first have something. And so when we talk about a revival, in a sense, that's what Jesus is calling for, a revival. In a sense, a revival must be done. The only people who could be revived are those people who have had life. So the only people who could return to this love are the people who had the love. So Jesus recognized the error, the lack of love, the absence of love, and he called for a change. And in verse 5 here, Jesus exhorted the church with a threefold remedy. Look at it in verse 5, the first, first part of verse 5. There, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. You see the three things right there. Remember where you have fallen. This is an imperative. In fact, there, there are three imperatives here, which is a command. And this first, this first imperative is in the, the present active. It, it's a verb, and it's in a present active, which means keep on remembering. That's what John is saying. Keep on remembering from where you have fallen. Uh, last week, Amanda and I watched one of those ridiculous uh, Hallmark type of movies, which judge me if you want, but it was kind of fun. So, but the, 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 the terrible plot, which you know from the first five minutes, uh, is this. There, there, there's a couple who's getting married, and they have uh, a bridesmaid and a best man. And you can see it from the start, the bridesmaid and the best, best man are going to get together, right? You know the end of the story before it starts, but that's, that's not the part. So the, the couple is struggling days before their marriage. They, they're not sure they want to get married. The bride in particular is, I'm not sure what I should do this, blah, 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 right? Lots of drama. Uh, I'm sure you, your, your weddings were never dramatic like that. But this, this, this girl was, was very dramatic. And so, so the best man and the bridesmaid say, we, we need to do something. We need to help them. We need to get this thing together. It's a destination wedding. They're, they're small, but it's, it's whatever. So we need to see this thing through. And so they go on this little uh, attempt at reconnecting the couple. And the way that they do that is by helping them to remember why they liked each other to begin with. 
So they do all this, these photos of, of, of their relationship and, and audio voicemails that they have of them talking about one another. And, and it causes them to remember something about what started this whole thing. In a far greater way, what Jesus is calling us to is to remember how this all started, Christian. Remember how it all began. And do you remember it? Do you remember what it was like to first believe? Do you remember what it was like when you first came to understand the love of God for you? The work of Jesus on the cross for you? Do you remember how, how excited you were? That your sins were forgiven? That your eternity was guaranteed with God? That you were willing to, to give your life? You were willing to serve? You were willing to do stuff? Because of this one who has loved you. The love. The love of Christ is the motivation for the Christian life. What is the the cause of our love? What is the cause of our first love? It's the love of Christ for us. That's what 1 John chapter 4 verse 9 says. We love, why? Because he first loved us. So when Jesus says, remember where you have fallen, go back, remember where this began. Remember the love of God for you. Remember how you loved God in return. Remember how it compelled you, that is the love of God, compelled you to no longer live for yourself, but to live for him and to love him. This is as if to say, go back to the beginning, remember the the early days, remember the passion, remember the, the honeymoon type of love. Maybe some of us need to go back. Maybe we need to go back to that love. Remember again what God has done, what brought you to repentance, what brought you to faith. This letter is to the church, so it's written to to Christians. There may be some of you here this morning, and you don't have anything to go back to. You don't have the first love because you haven't come to Christ yet. And so instead, we invite you to come to Christ for the first time. You may not have a love to go back to, to remember, but your day can start today. You can know today that Christ loves you. You can know today that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You can know that this morning. You can see that God loves you in Christ. And he died, Christ died for you on the cross. He died for your sins so that you could be brought to God. You could be reconciled to God. You could be made at peace with God. And the response to that good news is that we would repent of our sins. We would recognize that God is holy, that Jesus is the Savior I need. So I repent of my sins and I'm placing my faith in Jesus to save me from the wrath to come. And in so doing, as we repent and believe, we love the one who first loved us. Well, the second part of this solution or this remedy comes next in one word. Not only remember, but secondly, repent. Just one word, repent. And certainly Jesus' solution here is to repent of your sins. Another imperative, another command to do. 
what is repentance? It's, it's a change of mind. It's going one way and, and turning back to the other way. It's a 180 degree turn, which results in not just a change of mind, but a change of attitude and a change of action. For someone to say that they have repented and continue in the same course indicates that there is no repentance. Repentance is, there's, there's evidence of repentance in how we live. And here Jesus says we must repent. And yes, we must repent in order to be saved. But that doesn't mean that we stop repenting. Martin Luther, the reformer, as he nailed his 95 theses to the door in, in, in Germany at Wittenberg, wrote this. His first thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Christian, we don't repent just once. We repent once in order to be saved, yes. But the reality is we continue to fall short. We continue to sin. That doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but we do lose our fellowship. And so we are invited to repent. We are called to repent, in fact. Not to ensure our salvation, but to continue our fellowship in unity with God. Whatever would lead us to this loss of love, we must repent. Whatever would keep us from God, of it we must repent. We must forsake it. Whatever would keep us from loving God fully, we must repent. We don't know all the reasons why the church in, the, in Ephesus lost their first love. We don't know the reasons for that. They, they certainly would vary, as they would vary in this room, of why you might lose your love for Christ. But whatever it is that, that has caused it, whatever it has led to it, whatever that's getting in the way of it, must be forsaken, must be repented of, must be turned from. And finally, the third command, do the works you did at first. The call of Jesus is not just to remember something, not just to go back. Is to go back and then repent of where you've been. And then what? Stop doing it. Do the works you did at first. By grace, continue in what you did at first. Return to the way you were. Return to loving God. This is the, the, the image of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Who went his own way. Who left the father. Who loved other things other than the father. And when he came to the end of himself, when he came to recognize that this, that this only led to death, he returned. He returned in repentance. And his repentance was marked by a change, an evident change of attitude and of action. He returned, he returned to what he was at first. The threefold remedy. Remember. Repent and do the works you did at first. This exhortation, this, this call then is followed by a warning or, or a caution, the rest of verse five. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus is just throwing out suggestions here. You know what would be really good? If you remember, repent and return. 
But, you know, if not, you, you do you. No, 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 that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is commanding the church, do this. You have a problem. This is the solution. Remember, repent, and return. And here's a little kicker. If you don't do it, here's what's going to happen. I will come to you. This isn't the coming that you want for Jesus. This isn't the coming that you're longing for. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about judgment. And why do we know he's talking about judgment? Because he, the rest of the verse. And what? Remove your lampstand from its place. One writer calls this the unchurching of the church. The church ceases to be the church. It's dead. Unless they repent, the church ceases to be the church. To remove the lampstand is to remove Christ's presence, Christ's blessing from the church. I don't want to be in a church that has a lampstand removed. God forbid it. His presence, his blessing. You don't want to be in a church that does not have God's blessing. 35 years before this, before John wrote these words or penned these words, Paul wrote a letter to Ephesus. And throughout that letter, called the epistle to the Ephesians, love is mentioned in every chapter, in all six chapters, multiple times throughout the book. And in chapter 1, verse 15, it says, For this reason, because you heard of, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love towards the saints. Well, what is Paul identifying here? He's identifying faith and he's identifying love. Now we're on to the second generation of believers. And Jesus is looking at the church and saying, yeah, you still have the doctrine. You still have your faith. But there's no love. The, the love is lost. The church had lost what it once was. It no longer followed the commands of Jesus. They had the knowledge in their head, but not the passion in their heart. They were a loveless church. They were a loveless church. And decades later, you know what happened to that church? The lampstand was removed. The church in Ephesus doesn't exist anymore. It's done. It's over. What did Jesus say? Unless you repent, I'll come and remove the lampstand. He did it. He did it. And woe to the church today that is guilty of dead orthodoxy. May it not be so among us. May we never be so intent on believing the right theology that we miss the heart of God. Truth and love are not enemies. Churches seem to err on either side here. Either we are all truth and no love or all love and no truth. Truth and love are not enemies. Theology and love do not need to be two separate ideas. And yet this is the danger that Jesus is talking about. This idea of truth without love. Francis Schaeffer wrote this, Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. To which we would say, Amen. If you use the Bible in a way to, to hurt people or to crush people or without any sense of love or compassion, you're doing it wrong. 
And it is the ugliest thing to use God's words in that way. Well, after his caution, Jesus ends with a a confirmation or a promise. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. You read the the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use that, that, that phrase as Jesus uses it himself. Jesus inviting, is, was inviting those who have ears to hear to, in fact, hear it. Listen. The same goes for us this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's Jesus talking. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that he and the Spirit are united on this. This is talking about the unity of the Godhead. The Spirit and, and Jesus are not not saying different things. They are two separate persons, one God, one message. Hear what Jesus says. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. It's plural right there. Actually, we find that in every letter too. This same statement in every letter. He wasn't here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here we have a, a plurality of churches. And the implication here is that this message is to all the churches. To the universal church, which includes you and me this morning. The question still remains, will we have an ear to hear? Will we actually heed the word of Jesus? Jesus concludes with the promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the the paradise of God. To the one who conquers or to the one who overcomes. If you turn back in your Bible to 1 John chapter 5, just a few pages back. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1023. The Apostle John also wrote these letters. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, as well as Revelation. And here in chapter 5, Verse 4, John writes some things that help us with this this sense of conquers. Look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world or conquers the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So to the one who conquers... Is that me? Is that you? Who, who, who conquers? Or how do we conquer? We conquer how? Through our faith. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus. Believing in Jesus. One writer says it this way. This believing is an active trust in God that leads to faithfulness in difficult situations of life lived for Christ. God's people overcome. That's what 1 John's telling us. They they persevere in their faith to the end and are rewarded for it. What is the promise? What will they get? They will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Are you kidding me? We've been studying in the book of Genesis. John is pointing us back to Genesis, and forward to the end of Revelation here. What happened in in Genesis? 
what do we see? We see the tree of life, don't we? We see some other trees that Adam and Eve failed the prohibition, eat of it, are banned from the garden so that they don't eat of the tree of life. And yet, what do we find here? We find that the way back to the tree of life, the way back to the paradise of God or the garden of God is how? It's through Christ. That points us forward to Revelation chapters 21 and 22, where we find again in the new heaven, in the new earth, we find the tree of life in the paradise of God. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, the one who believes on Christ by faith is guaranteed this promise. You will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You and I are not the church of Ephesus, but we better listen to what Jesus has said here. The evidence of a Christian is not that they never sin. That is not the evidence of a Christian. The evidence of a Christian is that they repent. That's the evidence. Doesn't mean you'll never sin again. That's not what it means at all. It means that when we do sin, we recognize that we have sinned, we repent and turn to God. Here, the invitation that Jesus is giving, the command that Jesus is giving, is for us to hear the words of Jesus, to repent, to turn to him in faith, continue in faith, and the promise is everlasting life. Commentator James Hamilton writes this. If you look at your frustrated spouse and see the bride or the groom of your wedding day, if you look at your your brats, he means your children, and, and see the newborn babe, if you look at your ill and afflicted loved one and see someone you have loved and will miss when he or she is gone, if you look at your needy church and see those for whom Christ died, first love will awaken your heart. Look at Christ, the one who died in your place, showing you steadfast love, everlasting kindness. Remember the way you felt when you first loved the one who first loved you. Repent and do the works you did at first. Some of us need to repent today. Some of us have have lost our first love. We might be busy doing things, but with the wrong motivation. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works. Do the works that you did at first. And may God give us ears to hear. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to hear it today? Your words. The words of Jesus here in Revelation chapter 2. The word to the church. Your church. Your people. Your people who are prone to sin. Prone to leave. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. We might even say prone to leave the love of God. So God, would you help us today? Would you stir in our heart? Would you convict us of places and ways in which we have abandoned our first love? Would you convict us? Would you open our eyes? Would you give us Give us grace. Give us faith to repent and turn, knowing 
knowing that you're a good God who's ready to forgive us. And help us then, God, to do the works that we did at first. To love you the way we did at first. To remember what Christ has done for us. And in response, to love you with our whole heart, our mind, our strength, and our soul. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God.